Hello again. It's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History of Comics podcast, this time with the life of Hal Foster, the father of the adventure strip. The adventure strip is a rarity today, though in the past it was one of the most popular genres in the medium. From Buck Rogers to Flash Gordon, these series captured the imaginations of generations, showing the medium was more than just joke strips. However, as time passed and the strips became more condensed, adventure strips fell to the wayside as the smaller pages shared didn't lend to their storytelling. During their prime, though, one man not only innovated the genre with not one but two adventure strips that his legacy was so complete, the one he created, Prince Valiant, still runs this day. His name was Hal Foster, and he was the father of the adventure strip. Howard, Harold Rudolph Foster was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada on August 16, 1892. His family was of English-Prussian-Irish descent, originally a rich ship-owning seafaring family, before descending into what he called shabby gentility. His father, Edward Lusher Foster, was born in 1851 in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, later growing up in Montreal. Hal Foster's mother, Jeanette Grace Rudolph, was born on December 19, 1864 in Brooklyn, New York, the daughter of Captain Edward and Catherine Kate, maiden name Stevens Rudolph. Captain Rudolph was an expert sailor and one of only eight survivors of the Blake shipwreck, which was stranded during a storm in March of 1856, leading to the survivors to resort to cannibalism at one point to survive. It is not known when the Rudolphs moved to Halifax or how Edward and Jeanette met, but the couple would marry on December 15th of 1885, with their first child, Mary, being born on September 28th of 1886. A second child, Gerald, was born on December 15th of 1888, with Harold being born the third in, um, in 1892. Sadly, Mary would die at the age of three from diphtheria on June 6th of 1890. All of the children would have Rudolph as their middle name. Of note, the family name of Rudolph is spelled with a F, is spelled with an F at the end over a PH, but a typographical error would lead to it being listed as, as the former in Hal Foster's career for 60 years. The growing family would live at Number 1 Lower Water Street in Halifax, where Edward's uh, maternal great-grandfather had been born, living in a house that had been in the family for over 100 years. From the for- front porch, they could watch the ships come into the harbor. Edward took over the family grocery store while earning his 33rd degree with the Masons at the age of 35. On the whole, the Fosters enjoyed an upper-class lifestyle. However, Edward would die in 1896 at the age of 45 from Blight's disease, his body being laid to rest next to his parents and daughter Mary in Legault near Montreal. Young Hal Foster would begin drawing around this time with pictures of local boats, sea life, and harbors. Hal Foster greatly enjoyed the sea and was able to skipper a 30-foot slope at the age of just 10. This would be part of his love of outdoors that he would have for the rest of his life. Hal's mother would remarry to Joseph Peart Cox on April 3rd of 1903, with another sibling joining the family, Joseph Rudolph Cox, being born on April 10th of 1904. Unfortunately, Hal's new stepfather was a poor businessman driving the family's grocery store out of business, leading them to relocate to Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1905. It was during this time that Hal Foster ended his formal education after the sixth grade at the age of 13. He did try to finish schooling in Winnipeg, but the need to support his family overrode that. Cox did imbue his stepsons with the love of the outdoors, and Hal would become such a good hunter he was able to help support the family through it, hunting and trapping game like rabbits and partridges to trade for, in for goods like hard cider. In a twist of fate, their move from Halifax probably saved their lives as the Halifax explosion of December 6, 1917 occurred, then the greatest man-made explosion before the A-bomb, leading to the deaths of 2,000 people. 
It came about when the SS Mont Blanc, carrying several tons of munitions, collided with the SS Emo, leading to the catch fire and drift into the harbor. Outside of the loss of lives, the explosion shattered windows 50 miles away, with one of the cannons on board landing three miles away. On February 12, 1906, Hal's grandmother, Catherine Rudolph, passed away, which further severed, severed tie, any ties the family had to Halifax. On September 10, 1908, the family expanded with further with Joseph Percy Cox, which led Hal Foster to fully quit school so he could work to help support the family. He began as a newspaper boy while also going to business school to learn shorthand and topography. Hal Foster would later take a job as a stenographer at a local mercantile bank, though he would lose that one due to ditching it to go hunting one too many times. He would also take up boxing legends to stave off bullying, which resulted from his mild manners and Eastern accent, though he only fought one professional match. Foster did enjoy other sports, from lacrosse to baseball, though that came to an end in 1912 when he was shot in a, by a drunkard, receiving some buckshot in the leg, only, and only living by returning fire, winging the attacker. While never brilliant at sports, Foster would credit his love with, uh, with helping create realistic action sequences in his later years. Throughout all of this, Hal Foster continued to expand his artistic stills, with his early influences being E.A. Abbey, Howard Pyle, and Arthur Rackman, as Foster started taking his own drawing seriously. However, due to a lack of money, he would half-sketch himself for practice, standing nude in front of the, his cracked mirror in the room to learn anatomy. This also resulted in Foster learning to draw fast due to the cold Canadian weather, at the time when indoor heating was a rarity. Joking, he drew his body to turn blue and he couldn't sketch anymore. It wasn't long before young Hal Foster started winning art, local art competitions, and he would win so many prizes doing so that Foster later claimed his ego got out of control for a short period of time. In 1910, Hal Foster secured a job as a staff clerk at the Hudson Bay Company for $17.50 a week, about $530 today, and would later be hired to draw sketches for women's apparel in their catalogs. He would keep this job until 1913 when Canada's pre-war depression forced him out. Foster continued to practice his drawing, later becoming known as the best wrinkle artist in Winnipeg due to his ability to accurately draw women's undergarments. In 1914, his ability to led to Hal Foster to get a job at the Brigman's uh, Limited of Women to Winnipeg, where Tom W. McLean was the lead head of the art department. The company was contacted to produce uh, Eden's mail-order catalog, which only published seasonal, but still provided plenty of work. Plus, the schedule allowed for artists to pursue other interests. Along with the other artists employed there was Tom McLean himself, who was part of the artistic group that included Tom Thompson, Arthur Lesnar, and Frederick Varley. Together, they formed a group of seven in 1920, which helped start the Canadian art movement. H. Eric Bregman would later arrive to Bridgens on uh, March 20th, 1914. It would become Hal Foster's lifelong friend, with the two traveling to Canada together on June, July 3rd of 1914, hiking and canoeing through the countryside. English painter Alex uh, Dander uh, J. Musgrave also arrived in Winnipeg for the School of Art, becoming the school's art director. He would later found the Winnipeg Art Students Sketch Club, where he would mentor Foster and Bergman. Meanwhile, Hal Foster's uh, personal life would expand when he met Helen Lucille Wells, his future wife. Wells was from Topeka, Kansas, being born on December 7, 1894. Her mother died 18 months later after her birth, leading to Helen to be raised by her grandmother until she was seven, when her father, Harry James Wells, remarried Catherine Wilson, with the family eventually moving to Kansas City, Missouri. 
After the eighth grade, Helen was sent to St. Mary's Academy, a finishing school in Leavenworth, Kansas, while her father and stepmother moved to Winnipeg looking for employment in the, in the real estate industry. However, after three years, Helen's parents could no longer afford to send her to St. Mary's, thus she joined them in Winnipeg, where she began to go to college part-time. On December 20th, 1912, Harry and Catherine uh, Wells gave birth to Gareen, Helen's half-sister, and the family decided to move back to the United States. However, since Helen had a job and was able to support herself, she chose to stay in Winnipeg. In 1914, the World War I broke out, and since Canada was part of the British Commonwealth, many young male Canadians left to fight Europe. This left Helen with not that many male suitors, though she was able to socialize at the Winnipeg Dance Club, where she met and eventually fell in love with Hal Foster. Hal's stepfather, Joseph Cox, had passed away before 1915, leaving him as the sole provider for the family, which included his mother and two half-brothers. Because of this, Hal was not subject to be conscripted in the military service. When he and his future wife, Helen, finally met, they had bonded over their differences, her being American and he Canadian. After a brief courtship, Hal proposed and the two were married on August 28th of 1915. Being married to Hal Foster, Helen naturally became more outdoorsy despite having previously lived a sheltered life and soon was joining her husband on canoe trips, encountering the local wildlife, including coming face to face with a moose for which Hal chided her for not taking a picture. The new couple would live at 277 Bermoral Street, and their first child, Edward Lester Foster, was born on April 29th of 1916. This didn't stop the family from enjoying the outdoors, and when at just at three months, young Eddie joined the family on a canoe trip in an orange crate covered by mosquito netting, though Hal and Helen did avoid the rapids at least. To support their growing family, the Fosters added to their income as a hunting guide in Ontario and Manitoba in 1917. They even prospected a gold claim that year in Lake Rose, while their second child, Arthur James Foster, was born on June 6, 1917. Due to the stress of having two children and the hormones associated with pregnancy, Helen temporarily lost all of her hair, though it would grow back dark and curly from her original blonde. Helen would joke after that that her hair was 25 years younger than her, while Howe would also refer to his wife as a blonde despite her dark hair. Post-World War I, Canada went into a countrywide recession, leading to a general strike in Winnipeg that became so hostile it led to a labor force leaders being arrested. When the strikers protested on June 21st, 1919, a riot broke out when several hundred deputized police armed with baseball bats were sent to break up the protesters, leading to two strikers dying and 30 more injured. This led to federal troops from the nearby Fort Osborne being brought in to restore the peace, patrolling the streets carrying machine guns while driving armored vehicles. Peace finally came on June 26 when the labor leaders called for the strike to end. However, this local unrest led to the need for a job to support his family and encouraged Hal Foster to take his art career seriously, with his wife Helen encouraging him to leave home for training abroad. Realizing that when Hudson Bay or the Bridgens needed artists, they would, they would be riding them from Chicago or Toronto, they decided Hal needed to go to one of those cities to further his art career. However, after examining their finances, Hal and Helen realized they couldn't afford even one round-trip train ticket to either city. Figuring Chicago the closest, on August 16, 1919, Foster set up for Chicago with a friend and fellow artist, Sidney McCaff, on a 1,000-mile bike trip, with the pair making 100 miles a day on what was then non-paved roads, sleeping in bars and haystacks along the way. Foster and McCaff would later comment the worst part was being chased by dogs, and they got quite good at kicking them towards the end. The trip would take 14 days before reaching Chicago on August 28th, Hal and Heron's wedding anniversary. 
though Foster and McCaff would soon be robbed at the local YMCA where they stopped to take a shower. Thankfully, Helen was able to wire them some money, and Foster and McCaff set out to find some work, going to the Chicago Art Museum, while also pro- approaching studios for assignments. While work was readily available, being able to afford to live in Chicago was another story. Thus, the two returned to Winnipeg shortly thereafter, but with plans to move back permanently. Unfortunately, the Fosters also lost his, their gold claim in the 1920 due to the lack of filing the assessment papers. Thus, claim jumpers stole it, and there would be no money from that either. Instead, Hal Foster turned to working as a guide to save up money for his move to Chicago, locking 750 miles by canoe and 500 miles by horseback, and at one point taking a load of illicit whiskey down the Dallas Rapids uh, on the Winnipeg River by canoe. The effort paid off, and in 1920, Foster moved to Chicago, where Hal got a job at the John and Oliver Engraving Company while also enrolling in the Chicago Art Institute. Due to his lack of money, Foster freely audited classes there, a practice pe- poor people do to this day, as you can't attend college classes, but only, you can only get credit if you pay your tuition. Try it, it is true. As a result, the Institute has no record of Foster ever attending, i.e. receipts. Helen and their children would later move to Topeka, Kansas to live with her parents while Foster built his career. Hal and Helen also had to pay $9 apiece to become U.S. citizens, while Hal having to wait until 1927 to be approved. Hal would supplement his education by going to the National Academy of Design and the Chicago Academy of Fine Art, with Helen and his family eventually moving to uh, Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Hal Foster later got work at the Polinsky Young Studio, located above the Chicago Motor Club, with his main clients being Union Pacific Railroad, Johnson Outboard Motors, Wurzer Grand Pianos, Jalique Margarine, and the International Truck Company. There, he did ad and magazine covers along with Paul Proke, William Drawer, and Charles F. Armstrong. Armstrong quickly became a fishing pal and later introduced Foster to the fantasy work of James Branch Cabell and Lord Dunsley. William Drew would later draw on the Tarzan newspaper ship after Rex Mason left. This trip would have a significant role in Foster's career, while Armstrong did the Sunday lettering when Foster eventually took over. Later, Armstrong would letter on Foster's Prince Valiant before moving to New York, where he founded the Armstrong Process Lettering of Madison Avenue. Of course, before any of this could happen, the actual Tarzan strip had to launch first. In 1927, Joseph A. Neve of the Campbell Edward Advertising Agency met with Edward Rice Burroughs in Tarzana, California, a neighborhood now part of the Los Angeles uh, Burroughs, personally founded from a ranch he purchased, about adapting his character Tarzan of the Apes, first published in 1912 into a comic strip. Neve was the founder of the famous books and plays Incorporated, and had originated the idea of adapting popular material like Tarzan into strips. His idea was innovative at the time, as while adventure strips like Windsor McKay's Little Nemo and Slumberland were popular, none had a realistic take like Tarzan. Originally, he wanted to have uh, J. Allen uh, St. John, the Tarzan book cover artist for Burroughs' novels, as a strip artist, but St. John declined due to the deadline's requirements. Thus, they decided to go to Hal Foster in 1928. It will be a pivotal moment in both the character and Foster's life. Writer R.W. Palmer would adapt the text from Burroughs' novels, while Foster broke the story down into, ten, into a 10-week series. He ended up producing five panels a day, six panels a week, for a total of 300 panels. Foster did some thorough research for his art, ensuring that it would be accurate for the times depicted, something that would become a hallmark of his artistic career, covering everything from the clothing to the three-masked uh, Barakan uh, sh- shandling ship. 
He also used his parents for the look of Lord and Lady Gracecroke, the parents of Tarzan, while Tarzan himself was based on British film actor Henry uh, Wilcoxon. Foster also experimented with art techniques for the time, rendering the drawings in the brush while the shadows were solid black to contrast with the light on the objects, producing a striking look unlike any comic strip at the time, to the point that some editors were afraid of the new look. It didn't help that Campbell Edward had never produced a syndicated strip before, and despite Polinsky Young Studio contributing $6,000 for a nationwide campaign, they would have a hard time finding a distributor for Tarzan. Even King Feature Syndicate, owned by the legendary William Randolph Hearst and Hal Foster's future employer, turned them down. Finally, Metro News Syndicate, later United Feature Syndicate, agreed to do so using a 10-week soft-sell approach for the newspapers in which they only had to commit to the original Tarzan run and could decide later on to, co- to pick up the rest. Hal Foster was just 36 at the time his Tarzan comic strip premiered on November of 1928 in Titbits, a British publication, before premiering in the United States on January 7, 1929, appearing in 13 American newspapers and two Canadian ones. It would be a significant day for adventure strips as Dick Collins' Buck Rogers also premiered that day, along with 1929 being a banner year for adventure strips in general, with Thimble Theater, the first adventures of uh, Popeye the Sailor, and Tintin also debuting. The Tarzan strip was an instant success thanks in larger part to Foster's striking and realistic artwork. As a result, Hal Foster was soon called the father of the adventure strip and is considered to have established the definitive look for Tarzan, adding an air of nobility and aristocracy to his look, something, that's, something straight from the novels, as he is an English lord on top of being the king of the jungle. In addition, Foster would use captions in his strip over war balloons called story strip, something he would carry over throughout his career. On August of 1929, the strip was collected into the Illustrated Tarzan Book 1 by Grosset and Dunlap, though Foster ended his initial run to return to his advertising job. Rex Hayden Maxson, a bullpen artist for the Metropolitan Newspaper Syndicate, would take over as artist on the Tarzan strip, though the readers quickly assessed his art inferior to Foster's, with even Edgar Rice Burroughs himself hating it. He reportedly sent numerous letters to the syndicate over this. The publishers did try to persuade Foster to come back to Tarzan, though he was reluctant to do so. Foster would provide a black-and-white origin synopsis for the Sunday Strip, which would later appear in a color in the Tip Top Comics No. 41 in September of 1939. Finally, Hal Foster did return for the Sunday Strip on September 27, 1931, as he needed the money. The Great Depression had wiped out much of his advertising work, and the Tarzan Strip offered him $75 a week, nearly $1,500 today. Rex Mason, whom Foster never met, would continue as did the Daily Strip artist. However, Foster would parcel out the art to other artists, letting them handle things like backgrounds, inking, and research, dividing up his $75 paycheck at $15 apiece, often the only paycheck many of the artists would have during the the Depression. Thankfully, the Fosters had gotten used to lean time. They would spread their money out to support the family. If need to, they could go on the occasional hunting or fishing trip to put food on the table. Hal Foster hated the original coloring for Tarzan's, believing it should add to the strip's mood and atmosphere, leading him to do his own photostat, while also innovating the panel layouts, making each Sunday strip an integrated work of art. For this, Hal Foster was also credited with bringing fine art to the comic strip format. The necessity of adventure strips like Tarzan and Buck Rogers did lead to an explosion of the adventure genre, with series like Jungle Jim, Terry and the Pirates, and Secret Agent X-9 later appearing. Foster's own personal popularity started to expand as well, with fans writing in to praise his work as tar- on Tarzan. Thankfully, his wife Helen was there to control his ego this time. 
However, Foster would grow disinterested in Tarzan due to the bad scripts and lack of money, along with requests for free art from the publishers, which he flat out refused to do so. Foster became so upset he would write to the, his editors and even Burroughs himself over his discontent, leading United Features to raise his rate to $125 a page. This came a little too late, as though as Foster was already dreaming up his next project, a new adventure strip that was set in the past, the opposite of the ones like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. It would be the defining script of his career and one of the greatest of all time. And with that, we will conclude with this episode, but join me again next week when we finish up with part two of the life of Hal Foster as that uh, famous strip, Prince Valiant, does get launched in setting a new standard in the adventure strip genre. Super Kick Party. It's the wrestling podcast from the host who is the hammer swinging, burrito eating, well, you know the rest of Thunder Talk. Sexy. Thor. It's the Ring of Thunder found in the Thunderverse and among the great podcasts of the ESO Network. And now is September 14th, 2023, time of my favorite comic book of the week. Avengers, Inc., number one by Al Ewing and Leonard Kirk, which is a new series that finds the Wasp Janet Van Dyne tasked by Mayor of the New York City Luke Cage to investigate some uh, recent murders of some supervillains at the RAF's prison, only for a surprising uh, twist to come about, forcing uh, Janet Van Dyne to start up a new uh, detective agency in the Avengers Tower, which she's calling Avengers, Inc., with a surprising new partner, along with a great twist at the end about who's actually behind all this. Ewing does a great job reset, resetting the status quo for Janet Van Dyne, one of the original Avengers. And as pointed out, she's, she was the Avenger that actually wanted to avenge. She was the joint Avenger to actually avenge something. She came up with a name and everything. And uh, I love the new twist. Like, it's, uh, this is a no costumes, like a detective story set in the Marvel Universe, but with superheroes in the roles. You got the Wasp, you got Jarvis as the bartender. At, they basically work in the bar inside the Avengers Tower. You got Mayor Luke Cage. And uh, I won't spoil the, the guy she's working with, but it's a cool twist. And also, I love that cliffhanger ending, great, uh, which calls back to one of the, another original character that's been, who's been gone for a little while. And Leonard Kurt's uh, art is nice. He has a nice gritty feel to it, like a crime noir feel, which is perfect for uh, this style of uh, the show. It's like it's going to be a, um, a detective series. So, yeah, it'll be a fun, nice little uh, addition to the Marvel Universe, uh, not outside the Avengers uh, format. So, yeah, a lot of fun. Can't wait to read the rest of this series. And with that, we will conclude with this episode of The Lisa Hal Foster. Join me again next week for the concluding chapter. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. Good comic book. <laughs>